Can you hear me? Can anybody hear me? How about now? How about in the back? Good? Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. And I want to plant this, this thought in your head before we start, this question. What did the greatest man ever born do when he was in the darkest moment of his life? The greatest prophet, aside from the Lord Jesus, in his darkest moment, what did he do? He sent for a word from Jesus Christ. That's what he did. And Jesus answered him. I think it's important for us to figure out how that all transpired. And that's what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. I don't know if you remember or not, but we've talked several times about the way that the gospel of Matthew is structured. It's sort of got these two bookends. At the intro here is the, the, the birth and infant narrative of Jesus. And at the end, we've got the death, burial, resurrection, and the Great Commission from Jesus. And then in the middle, Matthew gives us five great discourses or preaching sessions or teaching sessions of Jesus. And so he, he divides his gospel up into five sections kind of surrounding those discourses by Jesus. And, then, and every one of those sections follows a pattern. It's got a little narrative and then the teaching of Jesus and then it ends with this little segue, this little phrase, when Jesus had finished and he starts a new section. And so today we're starting in the third one of those, the third section of five. And you can see the very first sentence of chapter 11 shows us that bridge, that little segue out of one section and into the narrative portion of the next. He says, when Jesus had finished, so when he had finished instructing his disciples, this takes place. So that's what we're going to look at today. I want you to understand that what we're, what we're about to see this, as this section progresses, we're going to see this increasing opposition to Jesus and his message. We, we saw in chapter 8 and 9 these great miracles. We also got these glimpses of faith, even, even though sometimes the faith was weak. We saw a little pushback against Jesus. But now that's, that's going to start escalating. And obviously we know how that ends. They crucified at the end. And so... I want us to consider this passage here as the beginning of that section as we see opposition rising against Christ. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, what a privilege it is to be appointed to your service. What a privilege it is to preach your word to your people. And this is your word. This is the word of the Son of God. Help me, Lord. Give me grace to help right now. I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon your church. You would build up your people and glorify your name through the preaching of your very words. Please, help us now in your name. Amen. Matthew 11. Let's read these first 19 verses. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. John is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But in what shall I compare this but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton, a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And so the very first sentence tells us what's going on here. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, that's when this starts, he gives them the instructions on this unique mission that we just looked at in chapter 10, and he sends them out. He had told them where to go and what to say and what to take with them and where to stay. And he warned them about persecution. But he said, persevere and go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And now Jesus sends them off. And while the 12 are gone, this happens. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12, he, Jesus, the 12 go this way, and Jesus goes on and continues doing what? Teaching and preaching in their cities. And so Jesus is continuing his mission. The 12 are out doing this unique thing. Jesus continues what he started back in chapter 4, teaching and preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Now, we see in verse 2 that while he's doing that, he gets interrupted by some of John's disciples. And here's the backstory to that. He says, verse 2, it says, Now when John heard in prison, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent his disciples. Now how did John get in prison? This guy is the, the prophet that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He had a miraculous birth. An angel comes to his barren parents and talks about this one that was going to be born. He spent much, much of his life alone in the wilderness. And then the word of God comes to him and he begins to preach. He begins to preach repentance in the wilderness. And he actually preaches repentance to King Herod himself. Matthew 14, we'll see that when we get to that section of scripture. But we see the story of how this transpired. Herod has basically stolen his brother's wife. He married his brother's wife and John the Baptist confronted him on that. What boldness that takes. To go to the adulterous king and said, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. Repent. Now, interestingly enough, Herod actually liked John the Baptist. It says in Mark that he actually enjoyed his, his preaching, though he was perplexed by it, as the unconverted mind always is. But he respected John. He knew he was a righteous man, a holy man. And the people thought he was a prophet, so he dared not hurt God's prophet. And so he put him in jail instead of killing him. Now, Herod's unlawful wife hated John. And you can imagine why. Now she's a queen unlawfully, but she's a queen, and this guy's preaching is threatening that status. What if Herod actually repents? No more queen, 
back to Philip, Herod's brother. Now, just so happened that on Herod's birthday, this little girl, the queen's daughter, comes and dances at the birthday party in some, some sort of fashion that really pleased Herod and all the guests. And Herod, in his delight, promises this little girl up to half his kingdom. Tell me what you want. I'll give it to you. The queen seizes the moment and says, you go ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she does. The little girl goes back and does that. And to save face, guess what? King Herod upholds his promise and immediately orders John the Baptist to be beheaded. And so they go and get him out of the dungeon and they cut his head off. His disciples come and bury the body and they go tell Jesus and Jesus grieves. It says he goes out by himself in a boat alone to be by himself when he hears that news. But sometime before that beheading, John's sitting in the dungeon now and he hears about the deeds of the Christ. It says in verse 2, John heard about the deeds of the Christ. What had he heard? He'd heard this report from his disciples who were still out uh, in the world. And we can see in Luke 7, which is the parallel passage here, that his disciples, John's disciples, reported all these things to him. Maybe the way he was preaching, maybe even the Sermon on the Mount. All of these healings and even raising people from the dead. They bring this report to John the Baptist. And then when he hears everything that Jesus is doing while he's in prison, he sends two of his disciples, Luke says, to go ask him one question. Look at the question. Are you the one? Are you the one? Now why is John the Baptist doubting that Jesus is the Christ? Because make no mistake, that's what he's doing here. He's doubting his own prophetic Message. He's asking, are you the Christ? Are you the one that is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now how in the world could John the Baptist doubt that? I mean, this guy had a word straight from God to his ear that says... You're going to be out there baptizing, and then one day, one of them's going to come up to you, and when you put him in the water, the Holy Spirit's going to descend on him like a dove. And that happened. I mean, this is the guy who said, that's him. That's the Son of God. That's the Lamb of God. How in the world is he now questioning that? Why? The first thing I want you to think about is what did, what did John the Baptist preach? John was a hard preacher. He was a hard man. 
He preached judgment. Remember what Matthew says in chapter 3? He said, you vipers. When the religious leaders came down from Jerusalem because he'd actually begin to draw a crowd. He said, you vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said to them, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. About to chop y'all down. The one that's coming, he, he's got his winnowing fork out and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and he's going to burn y'all up. John preached, judgment is coming. When he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he means the king's bringing the wood. But now where is he? He's in a hole. It's, it says prison, but man, don't think county jail. This man is a, in a remote other side of the Dead Sea dungeon. Josephus, the famous uh, historian, Jewish historian, who is not sympathetic to Christianity at all, gives us details of this John the Baptist and him finding himself in the dungeon. Can you imagine being... In a first century dungeon, down in a hole, maybe no light at all, wet, smelly, maybe, maybe rotten carcasses in there, rats, who knows what. That's where he's at when he begins to question his own ministry. And so like many of Jesus' Jesus's disciples, I believe John is in a crisis of faith. And what we're seeing here is a deficient faith. You remember me talking about that before? When Jesus calmed the storm, he says, Oh, ye of little faith. And it wasn't so much that they had just a little bit of faith, but it was deficient in some way. They were they was lacking something. And, and I believe that's what's What's going on here? I think we see uh, other cases like Peter. When, when he first hears, uh, later in chapter 16, when Peter first hears or begins to hear Jesus talk about he must suffer and die and be raised on the third day. You remember what Peter does? Y'all hold on a second. Jesus. No, that ain't. You got your, you got your theology wrong. Peter tries to correct Jesus on his messianic theology. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. His faith was deficient. And by the way, that, that section there, uh, uh, Matthew 16, where Peter does that, is like five verses from when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He got most of it right, maybe, but didn't know about all that crucifixion, resurrection stuff. Now, how does Jesus respond to this little faith, this deficient faith? This is what he does. He bears witness to John about himself. You know, that, that's what John's ministry was all about, bearing witness to Jesus. But now Jesus is going to bear witness about himself to John. Verse 4, he says, Y'all go tell John. 
what you hear and see. Go tell John what you see. You're going to see the deeds of the Christ. You heard about them, but you're going to see them. Because if you look in Luke, the parallel passage of Luke, Jesus actually heals a bunch of people in that very hour. He's having this conversation with John's disciples. It says he, in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on a man who was blind, he bestowed his sight. Go tell what John, go tell John what you see. Show him this and this and that. And you tell him what you hear. And he quotes Isaiah. That's what verse 5 is. It's sort of a, a mashup of some messianic prophecies from Isaiah. A text, by the way, John, very familiar with. He says, go tell John, listen, the blind receive their sight. The lame, they walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Go tell John that. You're seeing it. Now you're hearing it from Isaiah. John knew Isaiah. His very calling into ministry was from Isaiah 40. And so what Jesus has done is put together this collection of texts from Isaiah. And Matthew has already, knowing that this moment was coming, he's already shown us all these things coming up here. This is what Matthew 8 and 9 were all about. See? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Dead are raised. We've seen that. And now he shows it to them. Go tell John what you see and what you hear. So what, what Jesus is doing is proving to them, like he seems to always have to do, Proving to, to John's disciples, and now therefore trying to prove once again to John that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is connecting these centuries-old prophecies about the Messiah. He's connecting those 700-and-something-year-old prophecies, and he's connecting them to see this, see that, See this. Proof in real time. Who can do that? Only the Christ. Because Jesus is, is the long promised Christ. But you know what else Jesus is doing? Every one of those texts he's pulling from in Isaiah, where he's talking about all these glorious, miraculous deeds of the Christ. Every one of those little snippets from Isaiah is surrounded by judgment. Exactly what John preached. He's cluing John in to something. Judgment is coming, John. But not yet. Not yet. Turn, turn with me, if you will. To Luke chapter 4. Keep your finger. This may be the only time that we flip. But in Luke 4. Jesus preaches his first sermon in his hometown. 
He rolls into the synagogue, and they say, hey, Jesus, you want to preach? And he unrolls the scroll of the day, just so happened it's Isaiah. And he finds a place, which he's now quoting in part to John, Isaiah 61. And, and, and I want you to just imagine that scene there. Jesus unrolls it and he stands up and he says this. He, and he quotes, he's reading the Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. That's part of what he's quoting to John. He, Yahweh, the Lord, has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight of the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End of text for sermon. Roll the scroll back up. Give it to the attendant and sit down. And everybody's looking at him. Notice he hadn't preached the sermon yet. He just read the text. Here's the sermon. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There's the sermon. I'm, I'm that guy right there. I'm the Christ. But here's the curious part. Jesus chose where to stop reading the text and then preach. And he stopped mid-sentence. When he says, uh, I've come to proclaim, where are we at here? I've come to proclaim the Lord's favor. Guess what the next sentence says? And the day of vengeance. He says, I'm, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but he doesn't say, and the day of God's vengeance. You know why? Because those two things are going to be separated by, so far, 2,000 years. See, right now, brothers and sisters, right now, those of you who are lost, listen to me. Now, today, is the day of salvation. Right now is the age of grace. A whole year's worth of jubilee going on right now. Grace upon grace to all who come to Jesus Christ. But the day of judgment's coming. John knew it. He just didn't, he just thought they were together. Jesus is coming again to judge the world in righteousness, and God has given us proof by raising him from the dead. Now, he closes his message to John. This is the end of the message to John with verse 6. And he gives a beatitude. Yeah, another, another beatitude. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What Jesus is doing, he's pronouncing a blessing on those who have genuine faith. He says something similar to doubting Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? He doubted. Kind of like John's doubting right now. He said, oh, now you believe because you've seen? Guess what? Blessed is the one who has not seen and yet believed. That's you and me, brothers and sisters. 
And so he's pronouncing a blessing for those who believe, but he's also talking about a warning here. This is really a warning. So it's blessed those who believe, but cursed are those who are offended by me. And the word literally means stumble. It could probably be translated this. Blessed is the one who finds no cause for stumbling in me. And that's what's happening with John right now. His understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus is supposed to be doing has now caused him to be on the verge of stumbling. And he he needs to write his theology. Right now. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's exhorting John to hold fast to the word. Hold fast to the word that you preach. Don't stumble, John. Don't let your theological confusion in the midst of this despair cause you to stumble. Hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to what you preached. Now, let's think about what Jesus has just done now. Let's think about his encouragement to this great prophet. Because this is really important. You see verse 7. It says, as they went away, Jesus began speaking to the crowds concerning John. And Luke's parallel passage says, when John's messengers had gone, that's when he starts saying all this other stuff. Get that picture. All right, here's the crowds. They show up. We do some miracles. I give this message. Send it back to John. When they're gone, now I start talking about how good John is. Because what does he say about John? He's going to say, this guy, he's a prophet. Yeah, more than a prophet. This is the greatest man ever born of woman. Did John hear any of that? No. He didn't. Jesus didn't promise John deliverance. Consider what he's doing here. Consider what Jesus has done here. This man's darkest moment, he's in a dungeon. He's got a crisis of faith. Jesus could have sent him a legion of angels to rescue him from that dungeon, but he didn't. He could have sent one angel like he did for Peter and spring him out of jail, but he didn't. He could have sent chariots of fire to sweep him up in a whirlwind like he did Elijah, but he didn't. What does he do? He gives him the word of Christ. That's what he does. He didn't pump him up with feel-good flattery. John, you're the best. Hang in there, brother. He didn't try to boost his self-esteem. Can you you imagine the things that he's about to say about John coming to John's ears from the Son of God? That would have brightened his day in a dungeon. He didn't do that. He admonished him. A mild rebuke with truth about himself. He answered his question. That's what he did. And he gave him the word of Christ. He's, Jesus basically says this. You go tell John. I am the Christ. 
I am the Son of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. The dead in Christ are raised. Handy news if you're about to get your head cut off. Hear the scriptures, John. See the evidence, John. Wait for the Lord. Trust the promises in due time. You don't worry about my judgment. It's kind of like he's told the disciples. You don't worry about them. You focus on your mission. Or Peter. You don't worry about John. You focus on your mission. Or the disciples when they say, hey, you're going to restore the kingdom now? You don't worry about that. You just go and preach. That's what he's doing. So what can we learn from that? What can we learn from the master at dealing with people in dark places? That biblical admonishment is encouragement. It is encouragement. Because it grounds us in ultimate realities. It gives us and encourages us to what real, real hope, not fake hope, not temporal hope. It's powerful. It's a supernatural work that goes on when we have the Word of God and the Spirit of God and a regenerate heart. The Word of Christ is sufficient even at the bottom of a dungeon. That's what we learn. So John doesn't get anything about what we're fixing to hear. Jesus begins to extol John the Baptist as a true Prophet. Look at verse 7. He says, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, not dungeons. What then did you go out to see? You went out to see a prophet. You got one. True prophet. John was bold and unshakable in his preaching. Not timid and unstable, tossed to and fro with the religious impulses of the day. He warned the religious establishment. He warned them about the wrath to come. He confronted a king on his sin. To his face. It's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. He wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. And he wasn't in soft clothing either. This man lived a life of self-denial for God. Extraordinarily ascetic. He didn't live a life of comfort in the king's court. Think about that. He didn't seek, he did not seek comfort in the king's court through compromise. He didn't compromise God's word. Not one bit. And look where it got him. He preached, Thus saith the Lord. Come what may. 
Jesus calls him a prophet extraordinaire. Verse 9, he says, a prophet, yes, for sure, but he's more than a prophet. How was he more than a prophet? John the Baptist was a prophet prophesied by the prophets. How many of those you get? I can only think of two. John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist was the first true prophet in centuries. The Jews to this day say, you know what? God stopped talking with Malachi. And for 450 years, God didn't speak. But we know, unlike the Jews that are blinded judicially, we know God has spoken. Through John the Baptist and then through his son. John the Baptist was the forerunner, the one and only forerunner, the forerunner. This is what he's saying in verse 10. He's quoting now Malachi, the last word they had from God. And he says, that prophecy is talking about John. He's the one, the only one, not a team. I don't have a team of forerunners. There's one forerunner to the Christ. And his name is John the Baptist. That's not his last name. And he was the last Old Testament prophet. Verse 13 says, all the prophets and the law prophesied when? Until John. Man, I want you to think about this. This privileged role he had, this unbelievably unique position that John has in redemptive history. He's the pivot point. He was the last one. He was the last one in the Old Testament prophets to say, Messiah's coming. And he was the first one to say, there he is. There he is. And then Jesus freaks everybody out. In verse 13 and 14, when he says that John the Baptist is Elijah. He says, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah. And he says something similar to this over in chapter 17. We'll see that when we get there too. But he, he talks about John the Baptist being Elijah who is to come. You see, because in that same, uh, from that same prophet Malachi, not in chapter 3, but in chapter 4, God says the forerunner is going to be Elijah. He says, I will send Elijah to you before the great and awesome day of the Lord. But see, Elijah was swept up into a whirlwind uh, what, 400 years before Malachi spoke those words. These are the last words of the prophets. And see, the Jews believed that Elijah was coming back. Literally. Sort of in a reincarnation or maybe descend from heaven. And so that's what they believed. And Jesus is uh, going to bust that bubble right here. Before John was born, an angel showed up to his parents and said a lot of things about him. But he said that this one is coming, John the Baptist, is coming in the power and the spirit of Elijah. The Jews expected Elijah to come in the flesh. But Jesus and the Gospels now are teaching us something a little different. 
that, that he was uh, purposely and providentially meant to resemble Elijah. He had come in the power and spirit of Elijah, not a reincarnation. And you can see this. If you go study Elijah and John the Baptist, you can see these parallels in the way they dressed, in the way they lived in the wilderness, in the way they were fed in the wilderness, in the way they preached, in the way they confronted the religious establishment, in the way they confronted kings, in the way they were hated by queens. And both their ministries came to an end not long after this signature move. Elijah, fire from heaven, rain from heaven, down on the altar. And John the Baptist, the son of God, baptized, majestic voice from heaven. This is my son, Holy Spirit, coming down. And that wrapped it up. So he's this great prophet. He's the greatest prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. But he's also the greatest human ever born. Man, and, and this is not hyperbole from me. Look at what he says in verse 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's tall, those tall words. Despite what the world thinks, this man that's in the dungeon, Jesus says the greatest man ever born. Now, here's a kicker. Read verse 11. Read the rest of verse 11. Nobody greater than John. No man ever born greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Man, this little passage has caused a lot of stir among theologians over the years. And you got to admit, man, it's, it's jarring at first. If you, if you kind of catch what he's, he's saying, he's like, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. Are you, whoa, did you just say that John is lost? That this greatest man ever born, this greatest prophet from the Old Testament, that, that he's outside of the kingdom of heaven? Well, he would be if he didn't receive this message he just got. But I believe he did. I believe it was, it was sweet grace from heaven for him. And so what I, what I believe is going on here is not about salvation, but revelation. I want, I want you to understand what I mean. I want you to think about this. Who is a greater prophet? You or John the Baptist? Think about that. If, you could, if, if, if some of the Christians in this room, if you could go back in time and sit with John in that dungeon while he's waiting on this word from Jesus right in this moment, right now, if you could go and sit in that dungeon with him, who do you think would have a more clear and comprehensive answer to this all-important question? What is the gospel? The least of you would, would answer that better than John. 
Doesn't mean he's not lost. He believes Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. His hope is in that kingdom. His hope is in the Messiah. This is real similar to what Peter talks about in, in Peter chapter 1. He talks about this salvation that these Old Testament prophets prophesied about. He says, uh, they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And man, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or what time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. In other words, they're like, man, I'm getting this revelation from God, but there's a mystery to it. Now, don't get me wrong. John had more clarity than all of them, maybe combined. He actually saw Jesus. But the least in the kingdom of heaven now understands far more fully about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We understand that Jesus is the Word made flesh. We understand that His sinless life is our eternal righteousness by imputation. We understand that His death on the cross was substitutionary, the Lamb dying in my place. And we understand that His glorious resurrection and ascension got Him sitting at the right hand of God right now, ruling and reigning, and that we benefit from that ongoing priesthood and his ministry of the Holy Spirit saving and sanctifying his people and we know he's coming back to judge the wicked despite all his greatness John the Baptist lacked a full Bible what kind of responsibility does that put on you and me And don't think that John the Baptist, being the greatest man ever lived and greatest prophet ever preached, could, could escape persecution. Apparently not. There's another little phrase here that's hard to interpret in verse 12. It says, from the days of John the Baptist, so basically the, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and John, until now... He says the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. If you have an ESV Bible, there's a footnote there. And I like that footnote. Sometimes when I like a footnote, I'll scratch out that text and I'll keep the footnote. And I'm doing that in this case. And I want you to see what I think is going on here is a wordplay that should probably be translated more like this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been coming violently. And the violent take it by force. And so, if that's the case, on one hand what we see is the kingdom of God powerfully advancing. Jesus is healing everybody in town. The dead are being raised. Demons are being thrown out. The devil's house is being plundered. Many are coming to faith. And many more are going to come after Pentecost. And then the gospel becomes global. And here we are. This powerful move of the kingdom of God. And we're not ashamed of the gospel. We know that's the power here. Yet, violent men continue to attack the church 
And it was going on right there. John didn't understand this. This was his problem. He didn't understand this. He lost his head. The apostles were martyred. Persecution abounded then. It abounds today. Many, many have literally taken up their cross and followed after Jesus. It happened to John. It happened to Jesus. It can happen to us. Now this begins to set up this division that Jesus has been talking about. In chapter 10, he talked about this division. I didn't come to bring peace on earth, but a sword division between even households. And, and this division is between those who, by the power of God, actually hear his word and believe it and actually follow him. And it's the others that don't. Who don't hear his word, who don't believe it, who don't follow him, and who actually hate him. And so we see here in verse 15, he issues a very familiar call, very familiar little phrase that we see all through the Gospels. And, and this is where we see the conflict and the opposition begin to escalate in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, if you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, here's what Jesus is doing here. He is destroying popular interpretations of Scripture. He did this all through the Sermon on the Mount. We've got this entrenched understanding of Elijah. He's coming in the flesh, reincarnate, and Jesus is saying, nope, John the Baptist is him. And here's what he means by he who has ears to hear it, if you're willing uh, to accept it, is you need to change your theology about what you understand about Elijah. And what he's calling the crowds to in believing that John is Elijah is staggering. Because if you accept this, if you accept that John the Baptist is Elijah, you got a whole bunch of theology you got to bring with it. Think about what it means. Think about how they're going to have to adjust their theology all of a sudden. If John the Baptist is Elijah, that means the Messianic age has begun. The kingdom of God really is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has now evaded earth. It really has. And that would mean that Jesus is the king. This man's standing right before him right now. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the son of God. But you know what else it means? He's Yahweh. Because these prophecies about the one voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of Yahweh. And this text in Malachi about I'm going to send my messenger before me is Yahweh. And so the one that's saying, if you're willing to accept it, if you got ears to hear, John is Elijah. I'm the Christ. I'm the Son of God. The Word made flesh. Yahweh. And there's the, there's the dilemma. You've got to take the whole package. You can't just like a little bit of Jesus. 
This is who he is. God come to shed his own blood for his church. And he rebukes them now. This generation, he rebukes this generation for rejecting the Messiah and rejecting the messenger. And he compares it to this, this little, um, these kids playing a game. Look at what he says in verse 16 and 17. He says, but what shall I say concerning this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song for you and you did not mourn. So he's got this picture of these, these kids wanting to play. They're saying, come play with us. Let's play the wedding game. Let me play a little wedding song. Y'all dance. Don't want to play that game. Okay, let's, let's get serious here. Let's, let's play a funeral game. All right? I'm going to sing the funeral song and y'all, y'all act real sad. Y'all cry. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not playing that. That's, that's, that's the image he's given here. And so it, it's, it's the funeral song is John and the wedding song is Jesus. And they rejected both, even though they were total opposites, both compatible. They reject the messenger, John, because he's too serious. He's too serious. He sang a funeral song and they didn't mourn. They didn't respond. He came, most pious lifestyle you can imagine. Not eating, not drinking alcohol, fasting, eating locusts. And these pious Jews who love fasting said he has a demon. John was serious. He preached the law. He warned them about God's wrath. He said judgment was coming. He demanded repentance. He demanded evidence of repentance. And the Pharisees acted all religious, fasting twice a week. But their hypocritical piety was no match for this man right here. And so they had, to, they had to discredit him. They said, he's crazy. He's crazy. He's got a demon. He preached the truth, but they would not repent. Yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Even though they called him a demon-possessed lunatic, he was the greatest Old Testament prophet ever. He was the voice crying in the wilderness prophesied by Isaiah. He was and is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And he's the one who prepared the way for Yahweh who has now come. And they rejected him. And they rejected the Messiah that he pointed to. This is the, the wedding song. They didn't like the wedding song. They didn't like it. They didn't like the good news. They complained now. They flipped now. They complained about Jesus not fasting. They complained that he dined with sinners. Look at him. He's always with sinners. And Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Because Jesus went among the rabble that they hated. He preached good news to the poor in spirit. He had compassion on those that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And they flocked to him. And he healed whole villages and towns. And they didn't like it. And to discredit him, they had to call, call him a drunkard, a glutton. They said, John, you're too serious. You need to lighten up. Jesus, you're too loose. You need to tighten up. 
unsatisfied, insatiable, wanted it their way. And Jesus preached. He preached boldly like John. He called for repentance like John, but he also preached grace. As we'll see next week, he says, come to me. Anybody, everybody, anybody that is weary, come to me and I will give you rest. But they wouldn't come. They refused to come. And yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Even though they called him a glutton, a drunkard, even though they called him Beelzebul and a blasphemer, and even though they mocked him and beat him and nailed him to a cross, his birth, his life, his ministry, his miracles, even and especially his death and resurrection testify according to the scriptures that he is the Christ and he is the Son of God, Lord of all. Doesn't matter what they say. So they, they hate hard preaching and they hate grace and they wouldn't come they wouldn't come and the problem is that is the gospel it's not one or the other it's both they didn't like either one the one true gospel is both judgment and salvation we're going to hear more about that next week I assume from this young man right here where Jesus talks about the judgment that's coming on these cities because they would not repent. And then in the most tender way, he says, come to me, anybody. Come to me. Why will you die? Come to me and have rest. And they refused both. Jesus says, you search the scriptures and you think that in them you can find life, but they testify to me. And yet you refuse to come to me. So, quick. Seven takeaways. Number one, really easy. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. There are people in this room right now that are outside the kingdom of heaven. You've heard this a thousand times, some of you. And yet you refuse to come to me, he says. Why will you die? The second takeaway is this. Brothers and sisters, we need to cherish biblical preaching. They complain John was too serious. His preaching is too hard. They complain that Jesus is too gracious. He was too friendly to sinners. People complain about the same kind of thing today. This guy's preaching is too hard. It's too serious. Just hellfire and brimstone all the time. Just condemnation all the time. Or this church doesn't care about sin. They don't care about holiness. They never preach on this little sin or that little vice. All they ever do is preach the gospel. What saith the text? Do you want to hear that? Don't measure preaching by the tone. Measure it by the text. How faithful is he to the text? And next week, right here, putting Brian on the spot again, right here at GCC is going to be a perfect example of 
both those things. Now, on the flip side of that, I want you to reject a one-dimensional gospel. In other words, don't you always preach judgment and never mercy, or you always preach grace and never judgment. It's always good news and never bad news, or it's always bad news and never good news. It's always law but no grace, or it's just grace and no law. Reject it. If your gospel is lopsided, you do not understand the cross of Christ. Fourth, embrace God's sovereignty in ministry. This goes to everybody, and men or women. Embrace God's sovereignty in ministry. God is sovereign over who and how he uses people to advance his kingdom. Look at John the Baptist. Destiny set in stone before birth. Lived most of his life in total obscurity. He sacrificed everything. And then he only had a year, about a year and a half of ministry. And it was hard. He was rejected by the entire religious establishment and half the people. And then those true followers he did have, that handful, they end up leaving him for a better preacher. And he ends up in a black hole. Literally at the bottom of a dungeon. And then the Son of God who you've been preaching rebukes you directly in your weakest moment. And then the king chops off your head and gives it to a little girl on a silver platter because she danced cute. You ready to serve Jesus? Do you think John's complaining? No. Peter says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself personally restore you, confirm you, and strengthen you, and establish you. And when the chief shepherd appears, he will then give you this unfading crown of glory. John's wearing that. He don't care about this dungeon no more. Fifth and sixth, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Don't envy nobody. The greatest man on earth who's not in the kingdom of heaven is nothing. Brothers and sisters, you're in the kingdom of heaven. The least there is greater than anybody ever walked the face of the earth that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Sixth, Adjust your theology when confronted by the Word of God. John the Baptist thought he understood the Messiah. People thought they understood Elijah's return. But what happens when God contradicts your theology? What happens when you read something in here you don't like? You got two choices. You either grow or you become an idol worshiper. No middle ground. 
You can grow in your wisdom and knowledge of the truth, or you can continue to follow the God of your imagination and invent your own religion. Don't let wrong theology cause you to stumble and miss heaven. And last, in darkness, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When the greatest Old Testament prophet who ever lived was at the lowest point in his life, what did he do? When John the Baptist was in this deep, dark hole, what did he do? He sent for a word from Jesus. And how did Jesus respond? He didn't send him a military rescue. He, he didn't send him a flattering message to build his self-esteem. How did he respond? What did the Son of God Almighty think was best for this man right now? He sent him the word of God about himself. He sent the promises and fulfillments of Scripture. He sent him the power of the gospel. He sent him the word of Christ. When you are in your darkest moment, when your faith is being tried by grievous and fiery trials, and they will come, go to God's word. He will strengthen you. Go to Christ. He will restore you. He restores my soul and leads me on. For his great name. That's true. That's just true. This is not a cliche. I get so tired of being rebuffed by people. Yeah, yeah, I know I need to go to God's word, but no. God's word is sufficient. God's really, His Word really is enough. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. His very great promises, He says. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Be thankful and let the Word of Christ dwell richly in your heart. Pray that happened for John. I know it's happened for me. I pray that you'll seek him in the time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you give us from heaven all the time. All the time, we don't even know it. But available 24-7 when we need it. God, help us to break self-sufficiency. Help us to quit relying on everything else under the sun. Except your grace that pours from the lips of your anointed one, the fairest of all. Help our unbelief. We believe. Help our unbelief, Lord. Be glorified as we trust in you in the dungeon. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.